You're listening to Around Comics, episode 140. No one likes us, I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. Chicago, this is Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and normally the rest of the crew would be here to introduce this episode with me, but this past weekend was the 24-hour podcast, and our recording home, Dark Tower Comics and Collectibles, was taken over for the marathon podcasting event for the entire weekend. If you're interested in listening to any or all of that audio, you can go to 24hourcomicpodcast.com. That's the numbers two for hourcomicpodcast.com. It was a great weekend of friends getting together and talking comics for a straight 24 hours. And I believe that you're actually going to hear some excerpts from that on this Thursday's episode of Around Comics. So look forward to that. But on this episode, we'll get you ready for the week ahead with new single issue and trade paperback releases. I had a chance to talk with Chris Staros. He's the publisher of Top Shelf Productions. We have new webcomic and manga suggestions. Tom Caters becomes the answer man for all of your hard comic book questions. Scotty's ran on Smallville rolls on. Will Pfeiffer talks new DVDs and gives us a cult movie suggestion. And Sal explains how the internet may not exist if it wasn't for an ancient, unfinished poem. All that and more is next on Around Comics. This episode of Around Comics is sponsored by Borders. Sink your teeth into the story that introduced the world to Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter. Get your copy of Guilty Pleasures by Laurel K. Hamilton at your local Borders. Borders is your home for the tastiest fantasy novels. Find a store near you at borderstores.com. All right, let's get you ready for the week ahead with new releases. And to start us off is our own Brian Salazar. Hey guys, it's Sal with a quick look at some books that are coming out this Wednesday. This is by no means a complete list of what's coming out. Just a few books that I picked out of a list uh, to, to take a closer gander at, and hopefully they'll turn out uh, to be good stuff. So, uh, off the top, we got uh, uh, Atomic Robo number one from Red Five Comics. This is a new publisher, uh, and I had actually seen a preview of this book a while back. It's written by Brian Clevenger with art by Scott Wegner. It's about a uh, automation that was. Uh, Fictional, fictionally created by Nikola Tesla um, and hired by the U.S. Army to uh, infiltrate the Himalayan mountain base of Baron Heinrich von Helsingard. 
before he can perfect a super weapon for the Nazis. So it's a Nazi World War II era story. Uh, interestingly enough, there's no evidence that uh, Tesla ever created any type of android or automation, but he is often credited as the father of robotics. He discovered remote control and patented a radio-controlled robot boat in uh, 1898 and he used radio waves to move the boat in a small pool of water in Madison Square Garden during the electrical exhibition of that year so um, you know while there's no connection to him creating any type of robot he did sort of invent robotics at that time so uh, another uh, comic featuring Tesla that I would highly recommend to people is The Five Fists of Science by Matt Fraction a great story so check that out Moving on to DC Comics, we have Captain Carrot and the Final Arc, number one of three, written by Bill Morrison with art by Scott Shaw. Um, Captain Carrot was one of the first comics that I can remember actually physically picking up when I was a kid. It was a really fun book uh, at the time, I remember, and it was really uh, one of the, the last um, sort of fun animal stories that DC had told before the, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and that sort of wiped all that stuff away. Um, a couple of facts about, uh, or not facts, but a couple of interesting little things. It, it appears that Jeff Johns, Jeff Johns is a big fan of, of Captain Carrot. There's been some things that he's popped into other books, uh, most notably uh, in the JSA, Stargirls wears a costume that resemble Yankee Poodles, um, who is one of the carrot, one of uh, uh, Captain Carrot's zoo crew. And there's been a few other things that Johns has done. Uh, so take a look at uh, at this comic maybe. And also, if you're interested in, in Captain Carrot's uh, uh, first adventures, there'll be a showcase presents reprinting the entire series in uh, 2000 uh, later on this year. So um, moving on to another book, we have uh, Mystery in Space, Volume 1 from Jim Starlin with art by Shane Davis. Uh, this is uh, the... Uh, Mystery in Space uh, issues 1 through 5. This is a great sci-fi mystery story uh, with fantastic art. Uh, Captain, uh, Captain Comet was a uh, character from, I think, back in the 50s. Uh, he started out in the Golden Age in the 50s, and um, Starlin brought him back and really did a fantastic job with this character. So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, also from DC Comics, we have Wonder Woman number 13. This is written by Gail Simone with uh, art by the Dodsons, Ter Terry and Rachel Dodson. Uh, I'm really excited to see what Gail has in store for Wonder Woman. While uh, Wonder Woman has always been you know, considered one of the big three with Superman and, B and Batman, I just feel like sh her character has been so mistreated over the last few years. Uh, I'm really hoping that Gail can sort of right the ship with her and, and get her back to where she belongs. Uh, moving on to Image Comics, we have Brawl number one of three from Dean Haspiel and, and Michelle Fife. Uh, this is straight from uh, the webcomic site Activate that Haspiel had created in 2006 with a bunch of his other cartoonist friends. And um, I, that's where I first took note of his work, and I've been a fan ever since, so I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I, I know he knows what he's doing. Back in the 80s, Dean worked as an assistant to Howard Chankin on American Flag, Bill Sankiewicz on New Mutants and Electra Assassin, and with Walter Simonson on Thor. So that's pretty good company to learn from, absolutely. Uh, from Marvel Comics, we have Miss Marvel Volume 3, Operation Lightstorm Hardcover. This is written by Brian Reed with uh, pencils by Roberto De La Torre. Um, I was really pleasantly surprised by this book when I first started reading it back in, uh, during the Civil War crossovers. Uh, it's been on my pull list ever since. I think Reed's done just an outstanding job with this character, putting Miss Marvel in a more prominent position in the Marvel Universe, yet still having her own identity and a little slice of it where she can do things. And, and it's just a really fun, good comic. So there you go. I, I hope you take a look at some of these books and enjoy them as much as I will. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.
And now it's Chris Marshall from the Collected Comics Library to let us know what's coming out in trade paperback and collected editions. All right, coming out this Wednesday, October 10th from DC Comics, we're going to start off with Shazam! The Monster Society of Evil, the deluxe hardcover. This is from 2007 and is the run that Jeff Smith did. Next up, Justice Volume 3, the hardcover, for 20 bucks. But you can probably guess that there's going to be an absolute of this Justice collection coming down the road in 2008 or early 2009. So I'm just kind of saving my money for the absolute version. Uh, Mystery in Space Volume 1, The Trade, is out this week, as well as Nightwing, Love and War, The Trade. Over at Marvel, we've got X-Factor Visionaries, Peter David, Volume 3, The Trade, collecting a little Peter David run from X-Factor 79 through 83, and X-Factor Annual number 7. We have Mike Rowingo's and Jeff Parker's Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four Silver Rage trade paperback, collecting 1 through 4. Marvel Adventures Iron Man Volume 1 Heart of Steel Digest is out, and so is Civil War Chronicles number 4. This Chronicles this month collects Frontline, the Embedded and Accused storylines from Frontline number 5, and Fantastic Four 538 and Civil War number 3. We also have Powers Volume 10 Cosmic. Uh, and if you believe that, you know, hopefully it's true because this book has been pushed back and pushed back for all you Powers fans out there. But Marvel says it's coming out this week. But uh, you may want to hold your breath. Tomorrow, as we've got the Jack Kirby Collector number 49. Uh, from Gemstone, we have Disney's DuckTales by Marv Wolfman Scrooge's Quest. The trade, that's only for 16 bucks. From IDW, you've got the Beowulf trade paperback gearing up for the movie that's coming out uh, in the next few weeks. And finally this week, we have Spy vs. Spy Volume 2, Joke and Dagger Files, The Trade, for 26 bucks. This is the follow-up to Spy vs. Spy, the complete casebook that came out a couple years ago. Now, a little bit on the news side of things. Image Comics has released a press release regarding the Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers hardcover that was supposed to come out in November, but is now being pushed back to the first quarter of 2008 due to a restoration problem that they're having. And in this press release, Image is putting out a call to all art collectors who have possessions of Kirby's original pages. Anyone with access to the original Captain Victory artwork is encouraged to email Image Comics via info at imagecomics.com. When this book comes out, it will be 376 pages and be priced at $45. So that'll do it for the trade paperback releases for this week. As always, you can come by my site on Wednesday or listen to my podcast, and I will have the full release list from all the major companies and small press companies, too. For Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. Find the podcast, release schedules, and checklist of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com.
Each week, we try and bring you a new interview with people from all over the comics landscape. This week, I had a chance to talk with Chris Staros. He's the publisher of Top Shelf Productions. And if you're not familiar with Top Shelf, I would suggest checking them out. Whether it's horror, humor, slice of life, children books, or just about anything else under the sun, Top Shelf has a great reputation of putting out quality comics. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Chris Staros. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. No, thanks for having me, man. For some of the listeners out there that may not be familiar with with what Top Shelf does, can you give us a, a brief history of of how you guys got started and, and what you do? Sure, man. Um, you know, Top Shelf Productions uh, got started in '97. Actually, formed at the Small Press Expo in '97, where Brett and I had a little meeting, and I pitched the idea to him for us to to join forces and. Uh, and so we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year, and uh, of course, uh, this month we'll be at the Small Press Expo, kind of having a little fun with that. But uh, Brett and I were both doing different things back in the early days. He was putting out anthologies and, and uh, mini-comics, and I was putting out zines in the mid-90s, and we just got to be friends on the circuit, and he was a real head cat with a lot of design sense, and uh, I was more of a editorial type with maybe a little more business sense, and we just sort of really complement each other. And we both had the same view of comics, which was if it's good, it's good. It doesn't matter what label it has. It doesn't matter what kind of book it is, whether it's indie or mainstream or genre or non-genre. We just liked good comics. And so we actually kind of found each other and realized we'd be good together and formed Top Shelf that way. Well, talking about uh, the name Top Shelf, and, and I think that that probably has a lot of the philosophy of what you guys are based on. How, how did you decide on that name, and, and how does it reflect what you guys do? Well, when, when Brett, Brett actually started the company out in Portland, Oregon himself, and the original name of the company was Primal Groove Press, and its main publication was an anthology called Top Shelf. And right about the time Top Shelf number 5 came out, which was a really beautiful uh, perfect bound issue, I think it was the first perfect bound issue, um, he decided that he liked the name so much he would change the name of the company to Top Shelf Productions, and then I became his partner right after that happened. And um, and the name Top Shelf comes from the fact that for many, many years before Top Shelf, Brett was a professional bartender. And so a lot of the kind of shtick of Top Shelf and the name Top Shelf, of course, meaning the, the best booze in the business, so to speak, the, the, the good liquor on the Top Shelf, that's where the the name came from. Uh, oddly enough, the funny thing is, later on in years, we realized that in Canada and in England and in Europe, Top Shelf means porn, but we didn't <laughs> we didn't know that because in America it just means the best of the best. So that's how the name uh, that's how the name got started. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, that was very uh, interesting. Whenever Lost Girls came out, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Now, how would you describe uh, a lot of the a lot of the comics that you guys uh, put out? I know it's uh, and, and I'll preface this with uh, a lot of people hear alternative comics, and sometimes there's a misconception that those comics are uh, either very serious or or fall into the artsy realm. But whenever you start to look at Top Shelf's catalog of work, you see that there's a lot of variety that you guys bring to the table. Yeah, I mean there is, and all of the indie houses have a a house style that's sometimes a little bit harder to find, but you kind of know it when you see it. And Top Shelf's always tend to lend itself books that are very unique, uh, kind of cartoony, 
and focus on a lot of subtext and heart. And those are the kinds of things that Brett and I are attracted to and the kind of things that really sort of define our line. Um, and you're right, you know, the, in our world, the, the mainstream is really the subgenre of action-adventure comics called superheroes, and the alternative world is actually the very cut-across-the-board slice, slice of life things that are more related to the wide genres of film and literature. So it's kind of a little bit of an upside-down world that we live in and the way we define things in our own industry. But the, the top-shelf line is really more geared to things that are across the board, interesting, like film and literature, that can sometimes be funny, can sometimes be dramatic or whatever, but really are quite accessible. That's the thing that we've tried to do, is create a, a hip line of interesting and literary books, but that are very accessible. They're not elitist, they're not the kinds of things that you would be intimidated by or run from, but stuff that if you got into, you'd embrace and really realize that you can enjoy the mainstream books and also enjoy the top shelf stuff hand in hand and they really go well together sure you guys really you, you the work that you guys publish really does cross a lot of different genres and, and has a lot of different uh feels you look at uh at stuff you know our our hometown guy jeffrey brown i know he's from uh from michigan but uh, chicago is claiming him now so he's ours yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but jeffrey uh even in his work he switches gears from autobiographical and semi-autobiographical relationship stories but then he has really fun stuff like the uh the just released incredible change bot so he can go from um you know the the slice of life book to a really funny parody book yeah well i mean he so he does so jeffrey's doing some serious indie books and then some 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 fun stuff you know james kachaka has the serious books and he does super fuckers too which is kind of you know fun and irreverent superhero stuff and the, the, a lot of the guys in comics are actually and in the top family are actually big fanboys too they know a lot about superhero comics you could put matt kent and brett warnock and james and jeffrey on a on a trivia panel for marvel and dc stuff and i bet you they could hold their own with anybody out there i mean those guys know their stuff is you know so we're not an exclusive family or an elitist family. We're actually very much embracing of the entire industry. And, and we want our stuff, we want the industry to be more united than divided in that regard because we think that all the stuff that's published out there could be enjoyed by lots of different people. Uh, another thing besides besides uh, comics and graphic novels, I noticed on your site, and I've actually ordered a couple. Uh, you guys have a couple CDs available. Uh, one being the soundtrack to Blankets, and then there's an Alan Moore CD as well. Yeah, we do carry some CDs from time to time. the The Blankets soundtrack is is um, there was a uh, an ambient band in Portland called Tracker that was friends with Craig Thompson, and they decided to collaborate on a project together where Trekker's latest ambient album would have a, com a, a complete blanket motif from the design of the discs to the packaging inside to the covers and all that. And uh, it's not necessarily something that needs to be played while you're reading blankets, but it does have a nice atmosphere to it, and it's a, it's a cool CD. And then the, the Alan Moore stuff, we have two CDs right now on the side of Alan Moore, the, the hybrid working in Snakes and Ladders, and those are recordings of Alan's spoken word performances in the UK where every once in a while he'll write an epic poem about a subject and they'll set it to music and perform it live on stage. And these are the actual studio recordings of those uh, music and voice sessions. And 
they're pretty interesting, unique things. If you're now a more completist, they're definitely something you'd like to track down. Sure, and while we're on the the subject of Alan Moore, that was uh, actually some pretty big news in in the comics industry. Is that uh, a couple years ago, I guess, Alan Moore uh, decided to make Top Shelf his publisher of choice. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that relationship has been, and 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 how that whole uh, relationship got started? Well, you know, Alan Moore is the reason I got into comics in the first place. I never read comics as a kid. I V for Vendetta was my first book. I fell in love with it. This was when I was in my 30s and um, decided, you know, I could. I wanted to jump in the industry somehow. I wanted to get involved. And, and, and then to move the clock forward, you know, to the year 2000 when I'm already handling from hell for A.D. Campbell Comics and getting the graphic novel distributed worldwide and then um, asked Eddie to get me an audience with Alan because, you know, he when he left DC Comics for the first time, he started three main projects: From Hell, Lost Girls, and Big Numbers. And Big Numbers, of course, sort of you know one of the great you know stories of our industry sort of fell by the wayside. But Lost Girls, I knew was a great book, and I really loved it when the first two comics came out. And I always wanted to see that book completed. And so I asked Eddie for if he would make a call to Alan and see if I could get an audience. And and because um, I had been handling some hell, and Ada gave me a, a good, you know, recommendation now, and said, sure, come over and meet with me and Melinda. So I flew to England, and this was in April of 2000, and, and went to Alan's house, and we spent the whole day together. I really didn't plan on staying there that long that day because I didn't want to impose, but the day just unfolded into a, a, a just a beautiful meeting that lasted all day long. And, and we hit it off right away, the three of us, and um, by the end of the day, you know, we had had a, a, a deal for Top Shelf to publish Lost Girls and for them to finish it. So, ironically, as a huge Alan Moore fanboy, my first Alan Moore autograph was on the contract to publish Lost Girls, you know, which was a, definitely a dream come true. And since that time, you know, we've published Voices of the Fire, Mirror of Love, taken over the seed, those audio CDs, uh, Lost Girls from Hell, and... Um, and now we're going to be publishing The League of Extraordinary Drama in Volume 3, The Moon and Serpent Bumper Book of Magic, and, uh, you know, other things that come along. I, my relationship with Alan is, is so special to me, and I'm so honored to have it. I'm, and, I'm, you know, I, I, I can't believe he's placed so much faith in Top Shelf, but we've really tried to do our best to put out beautiful productions of his work and really give them the promotion they deserve. And, and I think we've done a pretty good job so far with him. Absolutely, and that had to be, like you said, a a dream of yours. If, if he was the the author that you came into uh, reading comics with, to uh, to have that first signature be on a contract for him to to do stuff for your company, I can't I can't imagine how exciting that had to be. Yeah, I mean, he is just so important to our industry, and as a writer, his books just never get old. They're they're timeless, they're ageless, and they always, they have so much to say, and they're so textured. I, you know, I guess every year or so I'll pick up and read Watchmen or V and go, you know what, I'm, I must be getting older now and mature, and I'm not sure this Watchmen thing is going to hold me anymore, you know? And I'll read it, and I will be blown away by it every single time. And it, and I'll find something new in it that I didn't notice, or re-examine something, and you know, everything he does is a literary onion, and can be read over and over and over again for enjoyment. He's He's really helped shape the integrity of this industry for so long. You know, he's just fantastic. Well, 
talking about the industry a little bit, one of the things that, that I see with Top Shelf is that it, while you guys do have books that are available throughout the direct market, I'm sure that the the book retailer market is is just as, if not more important. Do you look at the direct market and the bookseller market as being you know even partners that you want to get your books into? How, how do you guys try and position yourselves in what is very much a changing market right now? Well, it is changing, and so, you know, I'm not even sure where it's heading right now, but it seems to be heading in a very positive direction for the direct market and the, the book trade at the moment. The, the interesting thing is that the direct market tends to support everything we do to a certain degree. Not that all comic book retailers carry top-shelf books, but we're still distributed to, a, I guess, a minority of those stores. But the ones that do support us in the direct market really support us across the board, meaning if we put out 40 books that year, they will buy some of all of them. And the ones that sell really well, they will keep reordering and keep in stock. So, you know, they really do support us across the board. The book trade tends to cherry-pick the line more, but if you have a hit or a high-profile book on your hands, they can really go deep on it, you know, where where the power of Amazon.com and Borders and Barnes and & Noble and Virgin and and the, the libraries and, you know, all of these places combined, they have so many outlets. If, if they, if the publicity for something is big, like on a blankets or a lost girls or from hell or an alley or something like that, then all of a sudden you can get some very big numbers on a handful of titles through the book trade. So the difference is that the direct market can sometimes move very large numbers, but generally moves smaller numbers across an entire line, and then the book trade comes in on a few big tentpole items and really moves a bunch of copies. But it definitely has given us a little more stability over the years to have two outlets for our work and then combine that with our convention appearances and our website and to, to kind of shore up that third angle of, the, of, the, of our business. Sure. You know, uh, another part of the the industry that's become very important in the last few years is is Hollywood, and uh, you, you can go all the way from Marvel and and DC all the way down to some of the you know smallest publishers. And developing movie properties or TV properties has has become big business for comics. How much has have you guys concentrated on on getting into Hollywood? Is it is it anything that you're interested in at this point? I mean, definitely we are interested in Hollywood stuff. We, we tend to be a company that really focuses on art and that, and, and, and we find things we really like artistically, we publish them, and then we sort of let commerce come to us. We, Brett and I never sit around going, let's find a book that we could make a great movie out of. You know, we, we never go in that direction. We said, let's just find a great book. And if the, and if a movie can come out of it, that's great. And we, we don't necessarily court Hollywood, but we have, gotten to meet a lot of people through Hollywood over time, and so we sometimes will send sample copies of our books and uh, seasonal samplers and things like that to people in Hollywood so they can see them, and if they're interested in something, we can send them copies. Often, more hands, you know, Hollywood's a little more of a pull organization. In other words, if they hear something about a book, like the latest book that we did that they've really gotten excited about was a book called The Surrogates, you know, which was a, a sci-fi epic that Robert Venditti our, one of our employees wrote while well, he was working for us, and I read the script and liked it so much we decided to, to publish it ourselves. And um, and that book ended up uh, getting looked at by all the major studios. And then and finally we actually struck a deal with Disney, and, and the, the Disney ended up optioning the property 
just recently, and also uh, they're writing the script right now and have the directors and producers assigned, and, you know, who knows? I mean, I, it's hard to tell when it might be greenlit, but it, it could be in the next year or so. But we, um, obviously Hollywood is a good thing if it gets attached to a book because you can move a lot of copies behind that, and, you, and the kind of publicity and advertising they do that goes along with films is staggering, you know, from a financial point of view compared to what we could do on our own. So... I mean, it's not something we court, but if it comes to us, if somebody's interested in something, then we'll negotiate those things. And, and we have a Hollywood agent. We have a Hollywood attorney. We, we, we know what to do with these things. We know what to expect out of a deal. And uh, so, you know, we're starting to become a little seasoned in that regard as well. One of the things that I see is that a lot of, a lot of uh, especially smaller publishers, the, the projects that they that they bring on board or, or create from in-house, you can read them and say, oh, wow, this is they're really wanting to make a TV show or a movie option out of this. And, and I don't feel that from a lot of the top-shelf stuff, not that it's not fit for film or for TV, but I don't think that you guys necessarily approach um, um, acquiring projects that way. And, no, and we don't, because there's a lot of books we do that we actually love and publish, and we know right off the bat, this is not a movie, you know, this is not a TV show, but that that's not something we really think about, we just really go after good books, and then, you know, after the year's done, and we look back at the year, we go, you know what, these two or three things might actually be a good movie, and you know, we'll, we'll tell our agent, maybe you should take those around the town a little bit and see if anybody's interested, because come to think of it, that would be a good film, you know, but yeah, we don't go into it thinking that, that's for sure. Well, you know, back back to the variety of books that you guys carry. One of the one of the nice things that that I actually you know have in hand at the moment, you guys put out a a top shelf sampler. You know, we're just about out of those. We printed ten thousand of them and we gave them all away. I think I think by the time we come back from the SBX, because we ship some for there, that they will all be gone. But have no fear. We, we like doing it so much. We're going to do one again next year. But the sampler is kind of a a, a one stop shop to learning everything you need to know about Top Shelf. There's a our whole publishing life schedule is in there, the history of the company, um, a complete list with pictures and everything of all our perennials. So, for example, you know we do From Hell, you know we do Blankets, but you might not know what our other key books are, like, you know, Box Office Poison and Tricked and the Kachalka stuff and the Jeffrey Brown stuff and the, the key books that you should have on your Top Shelf, so to speak. And, uh, but it also, the seasonal sampler was designed, this one for 2007, it has eight-page excerpts and complete descriptions of bio information for every single book we've published this year so that you can get a chance to take a look at Tales from the Farm and Ghost Stories by Jeff Lemire, Super Spy by Matt Kent, uh, all of the other books that we uh, came out with this year, Corgi by Christian Slade, Micrographica by Renee French, Fox Bunny Funny by Andy Hartzell. Read some of it, take a look at the art style, and say, you know what, I really like that book, I'm going to give it a try. Or, you know what, that was not for me, but this other one, I think I'd really dig. So it's a good way to, you know, get a little confidence before you actually plunk your money down and, and buy one of our books. But um, it has been very popular this year. We've given a lot of them away. Um, so we'll we'll definitely be doing one for 2008, so uh, look for that soon. Well, for folks out there that are interested in, in tracking down Top Shelf, what's the, the best place on the Internet to find you? Well, I mean, the, the first thing to do is to check with your local retailers and ask them if they carry our books, because if they don't, they need to know that there's some interest out there to put these books on, on their shelves. But if you can't find the stuff locally, you can just go to www 
topshelfcomics.com, and our full line is there, and there's lots of stuff to check out. All right, well, Chris, it is always a pleasure talking with you. I'm sure that we'll see you at the, the next con that we attend. So thank you so much, and, and have a good night, man. Okay, thank you, man. Comics aren't just on paper anymore. There are literally thousands of webcomics available. Every week, Jeremy Mullins drops by to give his suggestions on some of the best and brightest in the world of webcomics. For those of you who appreciate smart works of absurdist dark comedy, I'd like to recommend A Softer World, a weekly webcomic strip produced by Canadian creators Emily Horn and Joey Camo. Each comic features three panels of photographic art from Ms. Horn, Accompanied by Mr. Camo's surrealist writing, which provides the uncomfortable inner monologues of the character subjects. This moody and very smart strip has been produced regularly since 2003 and has seen a massive surge in popularity since Warren Ellis linked to it from his blog. Since then, A Softer World has won the first Web Cartoonist Award for a photographic comic. Each of the unsettling oddball Softer World strips holds a secret surprise. If you allow your cursor to hover over the artwork for more than a few seconds, it prompts a text box to appear with a clever bonus addendum or afterthought to the feature. A Softer World also exists in print. Check out A Softer World, Truth and Beauty Bombs, a collection that reprints 180 of their best strips. To all you listeners, I can't stress enough how clever, biting, and incredibly well-written this webcomic is. Ignore Tom Cater's historical mad-on for all things Canadian. Check out this strip today at www.asofterworld.com. For Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art and design at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu. Welcome back to Answer Man. I'm Thomas Caters, and Answer Man is a segment where I take your questions and I attempt to answer them either with facts or with funny quips and asides. Uh, I did receive a lot of emails about last week's show, um, some positive, some negative. And I, looking back on what I did last week, I realized what I had done was sort of incomplete. What I had done is I had laid out a meal, but I hadn't given anyone the utensils to eat it with. Uh, What I want to give you is the way you should listen to this. Um, I realize now that some of you are probably in office cubicles, or some of you are at home, or some of you are on an airplane, some of you are a sniper with a rifle trained on someone, you might be an airline pilot, you might be a homeless man. I want to tell you how you should listen to this. I'm going to tell you how I'm doing it. Uh, I'm stripped to the waist. Uh, I'm drinking a Miller High Life. All the lights are off in my apartment. There's one single scented candle burning. Now, I don't demand that you enter the same environment when listening, but I want inside your head, put yourself in that sort of place. If you're in an office, go into a janitor's closet, turn down the lights. If you're at home, tell your wife and kids to leave you alone. Go into a room, turn off the lights, just get quiet. 
I want you to light one candle. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up a picture of myself that I want, if you want to continue to listen to this segment, I want you to print out that picture. I want you to hold it up during it. So rewind and go back all the way to the beginning and start listening to it from the beginning. But this time, holding up this picture I'm going to take, I'm going to post online. So now you're ready. This is what you were missing last week. This is the part that you were desiring. This is, this is, these are the utensils to eat the meal with. So now that I've set the stage, let's get on to the questions. I'm going to do two this week. Uh, the first one is from Tom O'Connor, uh, jerk, jerk from Pod 6 on the forum, who asks, Whatever happened to Peter and Mary Jane's baby? Is he, she, it still in continuity? Or did Scarlet Witch wish it out of existence? Did Superboy punch it to death? I must know. I'll be honest, I knew nothing about this baby until I got this question. So I had to do a lot of research. I had to go onto Wikipedia. I went onto internet forums. I searched Spider-Man's baby. I looked everywhere. And what I was able to determine, and I, I'm sorry if, you've, if you know a lot about this, because I'm, I'm now sickly fascinated with what happened to this baby. Uh, what happened was, right around the Clone Saga, um, Peter quit as being Spider-Man, and Mary Jane got pregnant, and they had the baby, and the baby was supposedly stillborn, or was supposed to be, and it was alive. Uh, and basically what ended up happening was this sort of baby storyline got dropped, and it's never really been talked about since. Uh, it has been stated by editors, at least you know, looking online and looking around and looking from what people have said, that the baby... You know, it was supposedly dead. So that's a very sad ending to your question. Uh, there's never really been a definitive answer. You very rarely, you know, you very rarely see it ever mentioned, if at all. Um, especially now that you've seen a lot of mentioning of the fact that uh, Jokasa has sort of complained about the aging of, of Spider-Man, uh, having children, being married. Uh, you're never going to see this baby again. Uh, the thing I find most fascinating about this, and I've now, as I've said, really sunk my teeth in this, is that Spider-Man has an almost Charlie Bucket-esque obsession with his Aunt May. You know, I can imagine him sleeping in the same bed with her and being obsessed with her. But yet he had a baby, the baby disappeared, might be dead. You never see him talk about it. He's not looking for this baby. No one's looking for this baby. Where is this baby? If you've seen this baby, let me know. If this baby listens to this show... I want the baby to email me at Tom at Around Comics. I will set up a special email called spiderbaby at aroundcomics.com. If you email me and you explain where you've been, I will send you a book. I, I'm honest. Well, a cheap book, a 25-cent book. So spiderbaby, if you're out there, let me know what happens. If you are interested more about the character, um, the Spider-Girl series is sort of a takeoff from that concept. You know, if the baby had you know, survived and done all that. I've heard very good things about this book as being sort of a fun throwback Spider-Man type book. Uh, I've always been meaning to try it out. I've heard very good things, so give it a shot. Uh, the second question I have isn't necessarily actually a comic book question uh, because I want to open this up because I want this to be a bit of, to learn a bit about the answer man, Thomas Cares. Uh, this is a question from Ken. Uh, this came uh, from last week. He asked, who gave Tom the lobotomy? Now, I had to do a lot of personal research to answer this question. And I went back to my mom. I talked to my mom. I talked to my dad. I talked to my family physician. And this is the best I could come up with. 
Apparently, pre-crisis, I did have a lobotomy due to my knowledge of the fact that my father was a supervillain. Now, post-crisis, I was only born with half a brain, and I was more of a tragic figure. Uh, I, probably not satisfying to Ken. You probably wants you know a more strict answer about what's going on right now. I feel fine. I feel like I got my whole brain. I'm doing all right. Now that was Answer Man. Uh, if you have any questions that you want to send, if you want to ask a medical question, I'm I'm open to it. If you want to ask questions about lost superhero, you know superheroes children, go right ahead. I'm looking forward. If you're Spider, if you're the Spider Kid. Send me an email. Let me know where the hell you are. I'll let everyone else know, and uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. All right. Goodbye. I say manga. You say manga. But no matter how you say it, Jarrett Williams is here to tell us what is going on in the world of manga or manga. This week, I will be reviewing Monster. Now, for those of you who don't know, Monster is a thriller horror manga by Naoki Urasawa, who has been dubbed Japan's master of suspense. It's an awesome story. Currently, 18 volumes have been produced in Japan. It's done over there. We're um, on volume 10 here in the States, and it's produced by Viz Signature. Uh, It follows Dr. Tenma, who starts off as this really goody-goody sort of doctor, and he saves this little kid named Johan about 10 years ago. Well, flash forward 10 years later, and this kid, Johan, is now like a like a psychopath and he's been raised by this organization these creepy villains who are raising him to be the next hitler and dr tenma who of course saved him 10 years ago now feels it's up to him to stop him and over the course of the story dr tenma becomes a convict he's running from the police and he meets all these crazy characters it's a great story the pacing is great it's got some witty witty dialogue the tone though it's sort of dark is not too heavy and it's very simply drawn it reminds me of Tintin a little bit, just the way the camera kind of stays static. But when Urasawa changes the camera and he has some of these awesome shots that are just so tense, you really, you really feel it. So I recommend it this week. Uh, Viz has been pretty good about releasing a title every other month in the Monster series. Volume 11 comes out October 16th with a volume 12 coming out December 18th. So it's a perfect time to jump on. I highly recommend you read the first four or ten volumes before you of course buy the newer ones it's definitely one of those manga where you will get lost if you just try to jump in so that's my pick this week monster by naoka urasawa Jarrett williams is a graduate student at the savannah college of art and design you can read some of his various stories at www.lunarboyland.com From the bowels of hell to your bookshelf, the Teddy Scares return in a third all-new sad, viciously humorous volume. Teddy Scares Volume 3 includes the heartbreaking origin of Edwin Morose, the arrival of Eli Wretch, and Super Cyrus, the even stupider alter ego of Abnormal Cyrus. Based on the popular toy line and featuring art from some of the industry's most promising new and established talent, Teddy Scares Volume 3 is a must-have for any fan of dark humor. For previews of Teddy Scares Volume 3 and tons of other ape entertainment goodness, visit our friends at www.apecomics.com.
right, we're back to uh, to talk a little bit more about the fucking awesome show that is Smallville. Oh, the best character to ever grace the screen of television, Lana Lang. Here is a character that uh, I truly believe is a cruel joke being played on anybody who has ever watched this show. Um, at the beginning, everybody loved her because she's this uh, short little hot vixen girl that uh, Clark Kent was in love with. But um, I know that soon, very, very soon after the show started, they did not know what to do with this character. Um, she's always running around on the verge of tears. Oh, Clark, why aren't you telling me your secrets? Uh, with her awesome acting hissy, hissy uh, lisps and, and whatnot. Um, come on. I mean, what? Last season we had her. She was part of a general generational line of witches. Uh, I mean, here's a character that I could care less if she's on screen for uh, two minutes an episode, let alone uh, drug through a whole season of a main storyline of some kind of uh, witchcraft scenario. Come on, give me a fucking break. Let's uh, let's sit in the writing room for an extra hour tonight instead of going to our goddamn Pilates, and uh, let's think of a decent storyline. Or you can give me a call. I got a perfect storyline for Lana. Uh, we put her in a plane. She's been in plane crashes before. You guys repeat yourselves all the fucking time. So this won't be a shocker. It won't be a stretch for you. Uh, we put her in a plane. Uh, lightning strikes the plane. Uh, she falls out of the plane. Uh, I don't know, maybe in a mountain range. She falls in a goddamn mountain range. Clark goes and picks her up, but Clark gets there a little too fucking late, right? She's paralyzed. We put her in one of those uh, motorized wheelchairs. Maybe we paint some goddamn flames on the side. And uh, she doesn't speak anymore. We give her one of those speaking spell things, uh, you know, so she could just be like... Because I'll tell you what, the speaking spell would probably win an Emmy over uh, over the delivery that she's uh, capable of, of giving. So that is a perfect storyline. I really, truly believe that if you go with that storyline for Lana, she will become uh, the fan favorite character that you're looking for. Um, and not just the girl that people go, oh, wow, she there's a really terrible character written really terrible, but she's so hot. Yeah, keep putting her on the show. Um, so there you go. Uh, gold. Martha Kent. Uh, you know, we we really didn't take her storyline too far out of the realm of uh, reality when we decided to make her a senator, um, you know, because that's normal. Uh, you know, a, um, a housewife that lives on a farm that uh, I've yet to figure out what the farm actually does or produces. But, uh, you know, uh, he has to be – Clark has to be from a, a farm. So uh, – now she's a senator, right? And her husband died. Oh, it's so very sad. But uh, now she's falling in love with Lionel Luther. Uh, I mean, you know, kind of about three steps away from the devil, really, from from the way that the writers have portrayed him. And uh, but now nah, let's forget about that, right? It's like, hey, you know, Saddam. I know that you were a really terrible guy, and you've killed millions of people, and you were this really bad tyrant. But I don't know. Like now you're kind of cute, and there's something between us. Uh, so, you know, it, it, for me, it's just like, can we can we find other ways to stretch? I mean, again, can we sit in the writer's room a few more minutes, maybe come up with a little better idea? I don't know. Um, if anything, let's say that he was a great guy the whole uh the whole run of this show since season one. If Lionel Luther, uh, maybe he's Mr. Fucking Rogers. I don't know. If he was that, uh, I would be mad that she's falling in love with him for one reason alone, and it's his goddamn 80s lion's mane of hair. Uh, 
I could not have been happier when they threw his ass in prison, pulled out the wall uh, hair clippers, and shaved off his head. I thought, well, finally, the guy is joining this century, uh, looking halfway normal. Um, let, let's go with this guy. Uh, it didn't take him long, about a season and a half. Lion's Mane, right back on. Looks like a uh, goddamn lead singer from White Snake. I feel like at any moment, Martha Kent's going to go put on some white sheer dress and roll her ass around on the hood of some fucking car singing uh, while Lionel's singing. Here we go again. You know, this show's ability to uh, really uh, develop characters is just uh, incredible, you know, because um, they really they really find something and they stick with it. You know, I mean, Lana has been about six trillion different things throughout this show, but now she's been living in the mansion with Lex for about two two days. And and uh, now instead of the 19 the year old kind of young hip girl that she was uh she's now fucking dressing like jackie o like she's uh, all of a sudden a debutante because she's getting poked by the billionaire um which leads me to another thing right i just mentioned she's 19 years old everybody seems to forget that these characters are all 19 years old uh by technical standards they should uh still be in college uh not out at billionaire dinner parties getting drunk and drinking and uh doing everything else i mean we got Chloe, right? She's working at the newspaper. Now, I give her that. You can get uh, – I've seen people go freelance and do stuff like that. We'll give Chloe a pass, uh, and we'll get back to Chloe later. But you got uh, Lois, right? She she fails out of one school. She has to take senior year over again. But uh, she's chief of staff for uh, the fucking senator, Martha Kent, which we've already talked about. Uh, and she's now – she's writing for a tabloid. Uh, because Lois Lane is the, the crazy famous reporter laying on life, so we gotta start laying those bricks. Uh, but yeah, so she has about six fucking jobs. She's like the, the skit on Living Color. Um, but, and the 19 year old that has become the most pathetic on the show overall is, uh, our good old star, Clark Kent. Uh, we're talking about a kid who has no job, is not going to school, has uh, really no friends. All he really does is walk around in a Fruit of the Looms blue T-shirt and a red Carhartt jacket, uh, being melodramatic, talking about saving people all the time. Hey, buddy, how about you go out, you get a buddy, you go grab a beer, and uh, you figure out what the fuck you're saving people for in the first place. How about we try that on for size? Instead of being some pathetic sociopath that is walking around think uh, with a god complex. Um, let's try that. Stay tuned next week when I explain to you that I want to punish myself for still watching this show by, uh, I don't know, going gay. When he's not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman for DC, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us what's going on in the world of DVDs this week. Hi, this is Will Pfeiffer, and I'm bringing you the week's DVD releases. It's so you can blow most of your money on Tuesday on movies, then blow the rest on Wednesday on comic books. This week, with Halloween drawing near, the focus seems to be horror movies. The sequel, 28 Weeks Later, is arriving, which follows up the uh, hit movie 28 Days Later, with even more zombies roaming around England and other countries. 
If human zombies aren't your speed, you might want to check out Black Sheep, a New Zealand movie that combines comedy and lots of gore in a story of average barnyard sheep who turn homicidal. It's gotten some good reviews at film festivals, and it should be fun for horror movie fans. There's also a release of the classic Night of the Living Dead in both 3D and 2D, so if you've never seen this genre classic, it's probably worth picking up. And also, the Twilight Zone film, with segments directed by Steven Spielberg and George Miller, is out on DVD. Worth checking out. Um, there's some fun segments. Some work better than others. But on the whole, it's a pretty successful 80s movie. As for this week's cult movie pick, I'm going to recommend Old Boy, a Korean film from 2003 with a very intriguing setup. It's, uh, here's the premise. Guy's out, night of drinking, supposed to be buying a present for a daughter's birthday party. He's abducted off the streets, thrown in a hotel room with no windows, and kept there for 15 years. He's fed, he's able to stay healthy, he can even watch TV, but he can't get out and he has no idea why he's there or who has done this to him. Then, one day, with no warning and no apparent reason, he's released from the room, but he's told he only has five days to get revenge on whoever did this, and he has no idea what's happened or why it has happened to him. It's a great film, full of action, full of some powerful human drama, and a heck of a twist at the end of the movie that, frankly, might just leave you stunned in your chair. There's also some wild scenes, including one of the best movie fight scenes I've seen in a long time, where our hero, played by Min Sik Choi, takes on about 20 guys, only armed with your basic hammer, and he beats them. And when watching the scene, which is sort of one long take, you can actually see how one guy could fight off all those men with a single hammer. There's also a memorable scene involving that hammer and some teeth that get removed. And in one of the movie's most notorious scenes, he eats a small octopus live at a Korean sushi bar. That was one of the most controversial parts of the movie because apparently animal rights activists didn't like it, given that the octopus really is killed on screen. When they found out it was four takes and four octopuses, they liked it even less. But oh boy, it's a great movie. Visually uh, beautiful, directed by Chan Wook Park, who's one of the hot directors to come out of Korea, so I highly recommend it. This is Will Pfeiffer for Round Comics, and I'll be back next week with more DVD news. You can find more of Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and by going to the entertainment section. You can read Will's comic book work each month in Catwoman, and you can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where elf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Some of you may recognize that from the first page in issue number nine of Jason Aaron's comic book Scout. Or like me, it may sound familiar, but you can't quite place it. Or, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, like me, you might be more interested in what it's from. I read it, and I didn't know what it was exactly. I knew it sounded familiar, but I couldn't quite place it. So, I went online, and I started to research it, and I found out what it was from. But then I found out some even more interesting things, some really fascinating things, and I thought, maybe I'd share that with you today. What it's from is a poem, a very famous poem, by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, it's called Kublai Khan. The title is uh, from the Mongol emperor of China, Kublai Khan, who was the grandson of Genghis Khan. Uh, the poem's opening lines are often quoted. 
and it introduced the name Xanadu, or the word Xanadu, to the English language. Um, Xanadu, in the poem, is referencing to Kublai Khan's palace that he built. Um, but, interestingly enough, it was never called Xanadu before this. Coleridge invented that word, uh, or that name for it, and called it called it Xanadu. Before that, it had a different name, uh, and it, it translated into English something along the lines of Shandu. Um, but Coleridge created Xanadu. And the way he created it is, is kind of interesting. He claimed that the poem was inspired by an opium-induced dream. Um, he was reading a book one night. Uh, he had a headache, and he went and he took some opium. It was very commonplace at the time. Uh, opium was used for pretty much any ailment. So he took some opium. He was reading a book that uh, contained in it some text from uh, the, the travel journals of Marco Polo. Marco Polo spent some time with Kublai Khan, the, the emperor Kublai Khan. And he had written in this book about the palace that, uh, that Kublai Khan had built. And uh, Coleridge read this and f- promptly fell asleep. Um, but when he fell asleep, he went into this dream. And the dream, he said, was extremely vivid. It came to him like a vision, he said. It wasn't like any dream he had ever had. Now, many people, you know, say, well, it was the opium or whoever. We don't, you know, who knows? But he had this amazing dream, and when he woke up, he had total recollection of it. He, he, and it told him this story, and he immediately went and started writing it. Uh, unfortunately for him and for us, he was interrupted in the middle of writing it. And there was someone at the door from a local village or a local town, and he went to answer the door. And by the time he came back, he kind of forgot what the story was. So he never finished the poem, or at least that's how the story goes. It's an unfinished tale, a fragment, uh, if you will, of, of what the poem suggested or what the vision suggested. So we don't know the entire poem, but we, we have enough of it to sort of talk about. And it's been talked about ever since Coleridge wrote it, just about. Um, the interesting thing about uh, about it is it has been referenced all over. And, and people have talked about it, con, you know, conjectured what it means, if it meant anything more than just some drug-induced, you know, dream that he had, who knows. But plenty of people think it means more than that. And one such person is uh, the famous Argentinian essayist Jorge Luis Borges, who wrote... Uh, in an essay about uh, Coleridge's work, um, that he was fascinated by the fact that 20 years after Coleridge's poem was published for the first time, there was another work that was published 20 years later. Uh, It was a Persian text, um, and this was the first time it was published in English, 20 years after Coleridge's original uh, publication of his poem. And in this text, uh, it talked about Kublai Khan's palace, and it talked about how Kublai Kai had had a vision for his palace that basically God had told him to build it, and he did. So Borges was fascinated by this. He he came up with the idea that these two things were linked because the the, the time involved between them, the, the Persian text was 14th century, so it was hundreds of years before Coleridge was even born, let alone wrote a poem, and it had never been published in English, and there's no evidence that Coleridge had any knowledge of it beforehand. Um, so it was fascinating to him that these two things were linked so directly, that they were both about dreams about this palace. One was a dream Kublai Khan had and built the palace. The other was a dream that Coleridge had and wrote about the palace that Kublai Khan had built. Pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. And Borges thought, maybe there's this story out there that we we don't know the whole tale. Maybe it's being told to us slowly and, you know, in, in sort of episodes through these dreams. Kublai Khan started it. 
Coleridge, you know, added to it with his poem, and maybe someone else centuries from now will have another dream about it and add to the story. And maybe eventually we'll get the whole tale, and when we do, we'll find out, you know, the mysteries to the universe. I don't know. Pretty mystical stuff, you know. But it was fascinating to read this about this little poem that I had, uh, or this little part of a poem that I had read in a comic book. So, uh, that was the first thing that I found out. Now, you know, whether or not, you know, what you want to believe about it, I don't know. But it is just sort of interesting to think about that idea that Borges had. Since, you know, the introduction of the word Xanadu, the name Xanadu, since Coleridge's poem, and, and that's just one example of, of people talking about it, writing about Coleridge's poem, but it's also been, Xanadu has been uh, referenced to in dozens of different places, hundreds of different places. Films, books, songs, plays, all sorts of different places, and people just seem to continue to talk about it. But And there's plenty of them out there, I'm not going to get into all of them, but there's a couple in particular that I thought were very fascinating, and I want to go into them a little bit. Uh, further. Firstly, um, more than a century after Coleridge wrote Kubla Khan, um, a Harvard professor, John Livingston Lowe's, wrote a book called The Road to Xanadu. And in it, he sort of talked about Coleridge's poems and the idea that Coleridge uh, subconsciously, from all of the, the works that he had read previously, had pulled out little passages and images and phrases and things that he uh, enjoyed from the work, whatever, subconsciously pulled them in, into his mind, and then throughout the creative process of his of writing his poems, he sort of regurgitated them into something new. And that's not a, a new idea now. I mean, a lot of times people talk about that of like, you know, there's nothing new. There's no new idea. It's just different ideas, that, you know, you, you pick up from all sorts of little places. But at the time, it was really kind of an interesting thought uh, that this guy wrote about in his book um, that somehow you're linking to all these different things. And one such guy that thought that was really interesting uh, later on in life or, or later on in history was uh, a, a guy by the name of Ted Nelson. He read Lowe's books while he was a uh, an undergraduate in the late 1960s. Um, and at the time, it was fascinating to him. But he was also fascinated by technology. And in about 1965, he wrote an, about his sort of idea he had for the first hypertext computer network system. This was 1965, 20 years before HTML was ever invented, before the Internet that we take for granted nowadays was even thought about. He sort of had this vision of a group of computers linked through, um, through hypertext, and it was all sort of uh, inspired by uh, Lowe's book about Coleridge, who thought about it in a dream. So it's pretty amazing to think how that progression worked. So maybe there is something to this storytelling that Borges talked about, about, you know, we're being told these stories. Maybe it's coming out in different ways now. Maybe it's, you know, not a, a poem or a painting or a song. Maybe it's an idea about technology that has done more to change our world than anything else. I find it interesting now that, you know, if you go on Google and you put in the term Xanadu, you're going to get almost 600 million hits. or I'm, I'm sorry, 6 million hits um, about Xanadu, uh, you know, that's pretty fascinating to think about how the Internet is now, you know, this collection of, of, of links that things you can pull from and create something new, sort of like what I just did in the last few minutes talking about this book. What does this have to do with comic books? Not a lot, other than the fact that I read this little four-line stanza, the first part of an unfinished poem uh, in a comic book, in a one-word balloon in a comic book, 
And now I went and spent the last week looking up information and being fascinated and intrigued by all this stuff that links these things. And now I spent the last 10 minutes talking to you about it. Is it magic? Is it mystical? Is it viral? I don't know. But I thought it was pretty interesting. I hope you agree. And that'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back this and every Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussion about the world of comics and comics culture. Visit us online at aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comicspace. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again next Monday with another edition of the Comic Culture Podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Around Comics is proud to help support the Hero Initiative. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, and an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment. For more information, visit heroinitiative.org or call 310-909-7809. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007.